Big data, though not entirely new, is often talked about as though it is. It's become something of a buzzword associated with everything from politics to record sales to epidemiology. But not all big data are created equal. Some might not even be as big as they seem. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as regular panelist, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away today. Our guest is Li Ming. Ming is the Whipple V.N. Jones Professor of Statistics at Harvard University. His research interests include the theoretical foundations of stats, statistical methodologies, and the application of statistics in areas such as engineering or the social sciences. Ming is also the founding editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science Review. Xiaoling, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Thank you for having me again. I hope that's the vote of confidence for my last <laughs> right? I hope. Oh, I very, so. very much so, Shally. Very much so. It's <laughs> okay. great to have you back. It's great to be back. A recent Bloomberg Business Week piece um, about big data quotes from a 2018 journal article you published about big data and data quality. To get this conversation started, would you explain sort of how this issue of data quality in relation to big data became a concern for you? Right. Uh, thank you for asking the question. That actually really went back to 2012. Um, I had uh, a visitor to my department whose name is Jeremy Wu, uh, who was the uh, manager at the Census Bureau. And he was working on this uh, great product called On the Map. They're trying to study the U.S kind of uh, employment, you know, work dynamics, and, uh, and, and they use a lot of data, uh, survey data, administrative data, all kinds of data. I think they use about like 20, 20 different data sources. And he came to my department to give a talk, and he posed a question. And that's how got me start thinking this thing very seriously. The question he posed, because, uh, you know, this was to a statistical audience, he said, you know, we all understand that uh, a 5% the random sample is better than 5% of you know, non-random sample in measurable ways. And I think uh, for all statisticians, we know that when we say random sample, we don't mean a haphazard sample. We mean carefully controlled, probabilistically you know, uh, 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 you know, constructed sample. And uh, so he started questioning saying that we have studied this for like you know, 100 years, right? The understanding the, the randomness helps us to ensure things are being representative. But then the question he posed, and that's exactly how got me really thinking about it. He said, but can you tell me that if I have a 5% random sample, which I know the good quality, and I have 80% of some large data set, and I have no idea what was the quality of that data set, all I knew is that it covers 80% of the population. Okay? The question is, which one should I trust more? The 5% of the uh, good quality data and 80% of unknown quality. We're not saying it's a bad quality, right? I mean, obviously, if the 80% uh, have the same quality as the 5%, sure, we go with 80%, right? But I don't know what this thing is. And um, so, you know, he posed a question to the, to, the, to the audience. I was one of them. And, you know, the statistical audience are, uh, you know, very cautious, you know, know this kind of a, a trick question. So you ask people, say, 5% versus 80%, which one are you going to trust more? Now, okay, there will be a, smart, a few smart people in the audience, myself included, will be asking, say, 
trust for what purpose, right? <laughs> now that's actually is a really important yeah. question. Right? Yeah. You know, for what purpose? Sure. Okay, then then Jeremy would clarify, say, let's for the purpose of estimating the population average. Okay, that's a very specific one, which turned out to be a very uh, general one because many many things we look at uh, in our real life studies essentially is all population average, right? All the COVID in terms of uh, the you know the uh, the the percentage of people who um, suffered, you know the vaccine uptake is all about the population average, right? Okay, so now you ask that question. Now it's great that you guys can try. That depends on how statistically oriented that audience will be uh, for that kind of eighty percent versus five percent. And I've tried myself in quite a few conferences. Uh, most audience will trusting the five percent. Okay. Because of their their training, then you know, then you can say, okay, what about it's a five percent versus ninety percent? Are you going to switch your mind? You will see people start to be a little bit hesitant, okay? Mm-hmm. And then you know, there are still people say, no, I still trust the five percent. That's fine. What about ninety five percent? Five percent versus ninety five percent. Five percent ninety nine percent, right? Then you can see even the hard kind of a diehard statisticians start to. Lower their hands, right? And so then, you know, when I give this talk, and I learned all these things really from Jeremy, I was thinking of this question. And uh, then I would be posing the question to the audience. Well, the f- the fact that you lower your hand, that means somewhere there is a tipping point. Mm-hmm. You're gonna you're gonna sure. switch. But what is the tipping point? How do you calculate that, right? And why? What what was causing this thing? So. Uh, my 2018 article was really took quite a few years really trying to study that question. And it's kind of really interesting, very fortunate for me and I think probably for all of us. For this particular question about estimating population mean, turned out there is a very simple, uh, almost universal metric to measure that thing we want to measure, which is how do you do this trade-off? So, so in this trade-off, and, and I, I assume you're referring to your data defect index, is that? Mm-hmm. The, so, you know, if you can, you help unpack that that data defect index because you have bias. So, when you mean, what do you mean by the the relative bias? That's in terms of estimating this population mean, as, as you've described it. Right. Right. And you have it related to some correlation structure, and also right. to something about the population size. So, could you describe that and then talk about how the relative bias is related to those other constituent parts? Right. Thank you for uh, for the great question. You clearly have read my article. Thank you very much. But, uh, so uh, what I was able to do was that this is also I want to plug this the importance of teaching. Okay. The 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 when I started thinking about that question, I said, well, how do I even go about it? Right. Because you know, measuring that kind of sample variability, we have all the statistical tools. Probability. Right. We can talk about simple random sample. We talk about design fact. What the question uh, Jeremy posed was much more of analyzing non-probabilistic sample, right? Something is just mm-hmm. out there, right? How do I even measure something like with all the statistical tools, you know, how to do that? And then that reminded me that somehow I was very lucky, you know, in a way that I got reminded of a formula I taught many years ago when I became an assistant professor uh, at the University of Chicago. I, the first uh, semester, I was uh, given a book to teach about sample survey uh, was the for all the statisticians probably know that's Leslie Kish 1965 the book and uh, I can tell you and this is not a secret so I can confess the only reason I'm qualified uh, to teach the course is because I have never learned 
So diving to the book, and I learned a lot, and during that process, I learned there is a particular formula used to control the bias of a particular type of estimator called a ratio estimator. Okay, it's not quite relevant here, but but when I look at the formula, I realize that formula allows me to decompose that any kind of estimation errors for estimating the population mean by the sample mean into three components and only three components. Okay, one component is controlled by the data size as well as the population size. I guess it's probably easy to explain that if your size, if your sample size is getting close to the population size, then your estimation error should be lower and lower. So there's one term to control that. And another term was, is what I call the uh, problem uh, difficulty, is to control say, how hard it is to estimating that population average. And that essentially is the statistician's term is called a standard deviation. Because all you're trying to estimate is how inhomogeneous the population is. If everybody in the population is of exactly the same opinion, you only need one person to find that average. Right? And, and the worst case is 50-50. Okay? So there is a term estimating that. But what's left, and that's the key term, is there the term really measure what I call the, the data quality. Okay? And that term is measuring the correlation between the answers you are supposed to give and whether you get included in the sample or not. So the simplest example will be thinking about in early days of the COVID-19, we're trying to find out how many people in the population can be tested positive, right? At the beginning, when we do these tests, we did not say, hey, let's randomly select a bunch of people, give them a, give them a test. We give tests to the people we suspect they're either already developed a symptom or they have some serious exposure to people carrying this kind of you know, virus, right? So you know there's a, there's a positive correlation between being infected and being tested. And that's the correlation I'm talking about, okay? So it turned out that you need to measure that, that correlation. And that's what I call the data defect correlation. Why, call, why do I call the data defect? Because the higher the correlation, the more selective bias it is in your sample, right? Mm. I mean, it's quite clear. If everybody in your, in your sample are people already infected, what's going to happen? Your sample conclusion will be the whole population is being infected if you only use that sample as your estimate, right? It turned out be, it, it is that correlation which, which is the key. So, and the traditional good quality data doing probability sampling is to ensure that correlation on average is zero. Because if you're including or not is, is by some sampling mechanism, and you don't get yourself to choose whether you can you know, be a part of study or not, then that correlation you can prove mathematically on average is zero. The other thing that surprised me that when I did this study is not only on average is zero, practically it's so small because you can show mathematically that the correlation is on the order of magnitude of one over square root of the population size not the sample size. And that's the kind of stuff that uh, uh, most of us have not been you know, looking into that carefully. You can show, and I can even be very precise, the variance of the correlation, because the correlation itself is random, for simple random sample is one over capital N minus one, okay? The capital N here is the population size. Wow. So you will see that in practice, if a truly simple random sample, or equivalently this kind of equal probability sample, that quantity is incredibly small. The problem is when you have the selection bias, either by design, like you know, you only test people who are more likely going to have things, 
or by self-choice, like when in 2016 elections, you know, people feels like it's not a popular answer to tell people I'm inclined to vote for a certain candidate. They don't, they say, oh, I'm not going to tell you, right? That induced the bias as well. Mm -hmm. In either of those cases, that correlation is going to stay. It's not going to diminish as as small as the capital script or capital M. And that's where the problem arises. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Harvard University's Xiaoli Ming, editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science Review. There's this quote that the Bloomberg piece pulled out of your article where it talks about, you talk about the wishful thinking of wanting to rely on the bigness of big data. Could you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean when you say that there's this this think, this think wishful thinking that you can rely on the bigness right. of big data? Right, because this is also the insight I gained from the mathematical formula. And initially, I did not believe myself. Um, uh, literally, because when I did a calculation, say, oh, people say, yeah, we understand there's a, some deterioration of the sample you know, quality, but if I have enough of them, I should be fine, right? How wrong that can be. So what I did in the article, I said, okay, let's, let's do the following salt experiment. Let's say I know there is a defect correlation, say a half percent defect correlation. And where did I get the half percent? I actually used the 2016 data estimated because for 2016, in the end, we know who was the president. You can use the truth, you can deduce what the correlation was. And it turned out to be the answer of voting for Trump. There was a half percent minus half percent of correlation, okay? Exact correlation of the tendency of, uh, 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 you know, not wanting to respond. That's why it's a negative correlation, okay? And, and, and actually, actually voting for Trump. So you say, okay, take that half percent. It's not even 5%. It's not even 1%. It's a half percent correlation. How much damage can they do? So I say, okay, I, since I have the mathematical formula, I can write down what would be the equivalent sample size if I did not have that, that defect that would deliver the exact statistical error. That these are all precise mathematical formula you can put down. And for all my statistical audience, they know what I'm talking about is called effective sample size. Effectively, how much sample size you have. And that's where the mind-boggling results come in. Come in. That's where the Bloomberg you know, put, it in, put it in their title. So what I did is that I said, let them, then I did the following uh, uh, salt experiment. I said, okay, uh, before the November election, like, I went back about two to three months of time and look at how many surveys were reported. Well, you will find like a 20, 30, 50 surveys in newspaper, newspaper, uh, in, in, in media, in social media, you have all kinds of stuff. So I did a very rough calculation. So I put them all together. Like you think about each survey usually has like 500 people to 5,000. You rarely see these opinion people uh, surveys has a lot more than like 5,000, right? So I put all these together, I calculated roughly that we have about 2.3 million people have contributed to that kind of opinion, okay? That's about 1% of the uh, voting population. The question is that with, with now, retrospectively, we have an understanding that these 2.3 million answer, uh, which is about roughly 2,000, uh, uh, you know, 2,300 surveys, each with 1,000 people in it, right? Okay. And you will say, well, that's a lot of evidence. Lots. Of, if they all say Clinton is going to win, then we should all believe it, right? With 2,300 surveys. But what I did is that, no, I'm teasing you. I'm not giving the answer yet. I'm teasing, teasing audience as well. So I, so I did this calculation. And it turned out that the 2.3 million people, because it's not the absolute number matters. It's because they only represented 1% of the population. With that 1% population, 
and with this minus you know, half percent, it turned out to be equivalent to about 400 people's answer from a simple random sampling. Okay, so that is the reduction. That's what's getting quoted. That's a 99.98% reduction. No exaggeration whatsoever. It's a mathematical formula. But the first time I got it, I shocked myself. I said, wait, 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 this cannot possibly be true. <laughs> All my colleagues say, Charlie, you got to get this thing right, okay? Because otherwise, this like you're telling you're telling me like it's all the things are wasted. I did it like a really multiple time. I had the, my best students, you know, to help me, and it, you know, it went through the end of applied statistics, you know, all corrected, right? It's it's all, uh, and and then of course, retrospectively, we all understand why why that's the case. And now this is for my statistical audience, right? We know the mean square error is two terms: the, the variance and the bias. But the variance goes down one over little n, right? When the sample size is reasonably large, 2.3 million, you know, that one over n, is, it disappears. So whatever the left is all bias, right? Mm -hmm. So now you think about how, how much n you need to take, really need to overcome this thing, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's enormous n. So that's what I meant by trying to play this game, say, well, I have enough people. Yeah, you, yes, you can eventually compensate, but we're talking about you need to reach like a 99, you know, like, you know, but you don't, you don't have that. Right? It's just like usually, usually you have a 50% of population, you are very happy about it. But, but with even that half percent of correlations that, you know, you, you, you're still getting a very tiny, you know, uh, real sample size. Right? So that's, that's my point of emphasizing you would rather spend money investing in these uh, good small scale surveys than trust these self-report online, online data. Uh, because, you know, we all know well, right? The online population is different. Is the people have some strong opinions they want to express. <laughs> that's, that's, what it, that's what happens. And, and that's how that, that don't really, does not really capture the big picture of what the population is, right? You know, I, 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 this is a great story. And I, as I'm listening to you telling this, I, I'm wondering, you know, you got you to gotta know, how do you communicate this in a way to try to reach a population that maybe isn't going to be reading a technical paper that's not going to think about deconstruction of of kind of these sources of variation in the study. I mean, I, I liked there, there was a it was a great headline grabber right. in in uh, in Bloomberg. I mean, I love this. Big data can be ninety nine point eight percent smaller than it appears, and I, I think that you 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 approached it really nicely. I thought with one of the the, the examples. Your, right. your soup example. Right. But are there others? Can you talk a little bit about that example as well as kind of other strategies for, for how do you, you help someone understand that bigger is not better? Just because you have more, more of the wrong thing doesn't make up for a smaller set of the right thing. How do you tell that story? Sure. No, that's a, that's a great point. I want to even emphasize it, when you have the wrong thing, a lot of them that you actually make sure yourself you never get it right because you'll be concentrated on, you'll be so overly confident and even statistically, you know, for those who understand, there's something called a confidence interval. Your confidence interval will be so narrowly situated, but in the wrong place. So, 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 <laughs> yeah. you, so, you, so you will never get it right. So, the, so the, yeah, the analogy I was using, I have another one which I prob I'm happy to, to share with the, with the audience, is that when you're asked to taste, uh, you know, how salty or how delicious a soup is, right? It does not matter what the size of the contender. What it matters is that if you mix well, right? If you mix well, then a, you know, a few spoons is all you need. But the problem is that this assumption of mixing well, think about mixing a small soup or mixing a gigantic soup. Mixing a giant soup takes a lot more effort, right? 
So what matters is, let's say there is one, unfortunately there was a piece of salt that just get stuck in this gigantic uh, bucket. Well, unless you catch that, that piece of salt, right? And uh, you, you, you're just not, not going to get it right. On the, on the other hand, that if it's in a, in a small soup, you know, you might have a, you might have a better chance to, to you know, to uh, you know, to catch it. So, um, so the problem is that once you don't mix well, then the things just gets much harder. And 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 the larger the population, the the kind you know, the the harder it is to eliminate that kind you know that kind of bias. Another analogy I used uh, for for people to understand this 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 notion of mixing well. Every one of us, I'm quite sure, that unfortunately or fortunately, sometime you need to get your blood test, right? And when they, when the nurse gets your blood, they don't really say, well, you know, how much do you weigh, right? You know, they don't take the amount of blood according to your size, or you know, that like everybody takes like this pretty much the the same amount of the blood, right? Why do they do that? Well, that's because your blood is well mixed, or for, hopefully. Right, so that's why that's why you you know you take the blood from your arm. The, it will tell you about your liver, about your you know kidneys. Right, you don't need to go to the kidney to take some blood to take the liver to take some blood. Right, it's it's because mixed well. So that's the notion why the mixing is so important. It's the idea is is be, become homogeneous, so any part of it will be representative. But once you don't have the mixing, either by the design or you mixed it wrongly, or because people self-select. Then you can see the problem become much much harder. And I think what we have now done, the statistical field itself, is to really study when you don't mix well, how do you quantify that? And that's essentially was my 2018 paper trying to do. There really a lot more need to be done. I was very lucky having the low hanging fruit for estimating population mean. There's one simple estimate, one simple quantity can capture the whole problem. But there are a lot more problems need to be worked on. How you you've you've spoken to your statistical audience several times. How would you suggest the non-statistical audience, as they are consuming news about big data, because it it does come up in everything, right? right? Every time you turn around, people talk about the big data that Facebook is scooping, and they talk about how big data is going to change medical science. Right. What advice would you give to the casual consumer of news about big data about how they could go about? judging whether it feels like that big data is worth trusting or worth investigating? Yeah, that's absolutely a great question. And there's a short answer, there's a long answer. The long answer will take a PhD to really uh, understand. But the short answer is very simple. The short answer is always ask, where did the data come from and who collected? The additional question would be originally collected for what purpose? The moment you say it's a Facebook data, Facebook has done many, many studies, and but we should all understand that the Facebook users are, I think I don't have to convince people, they are not necessarily representing the whole country, right? And, and, you know, and currently, you know, I'm engaged in this study uh, looking at the estimation about the vaccine uptake, like, you know, how many, what's the percentage of population currently have take the take the vaccine, and we're using data from Facebook survey, from uh, a U.S. Census Bureau survey, as well as the CDC. Uh, supposedly, they should be the most accurate one because they're trying to not. They're not doing survey. They're trying to report everything. And currently, the the study and this is not uh, this one is going to be uh, quite obvious for anyone look at them that their answers are very different. Uh, the 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 Facebook is you know could be as high as like seventy percent. 
and the CDC is like a 50%. So we need to look into the reasons for all these, for all these differences. It's, in, it's, you know, the Facebook might be overestimating, the CDC might have underreporting for all kinds of reasons, but there's one thing we're all sure, and we should be sure, these differences are not due to sampling error. These are not the traditional statistical sampling error. There are, there are biases in the sampling frame, like the original population taken from. There are biases due to non-response rate. You know, their biases could de depends on people's response bias. Like they have not taken the vaccine, but that, but they think it's a, it's a, it's a correct answer to answer. Say I have done that, right? There's all these issues. So I think so. Uh, the for the, for the general audience is the always asking uh, where the data come from, who collect them. The other question you should always ask is especially when you compare different surveys, how the question was asked. Mm. And also, the other one, which is most people may or may not realize, and, and you invite me back, I'll give you another story about, <laughs> about, about the impact of the ordering of the question oh, in the yeah, survey. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay? It's an identical yeah. question. depends on where you put it. Yeah. The rate can change by like 100% time. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, all that framing stuff is really fascinating uh, and how that's, that's, that is carried carried out in these studies. You know, it, in this same in this piece, this Bloomberg piece, I, I really enjoyed the comment you were talking about the idea of, of big data is not a substitute but a supplement to traditional data collection and analysis. And I know that you've been involved talking with colleagues at the UN Statistical Commission about kind of some of the work that they hit, that they are considering and how they incorporate. Uh, big data sources. Could you talk just a little bit about kind of what what some of these national statistical organizations were thinking about doing, and what were some of the cautions that you gave to them? Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, in fact, that uh, was interesting that I got invited by uh, the by the UN, the statistical agency, because of that, that article 2018, and I think someone read it, so they invited me, and then uh, they had a conference, uh, really uh, kind of a you know international conference workshop. They were trying to really answer the question that many countries uh, really were asking or are asking, uh, should we still do these uh, time-consuming, costly, kind of a careful surveys when we have so many big data out there, like administrative data? So that's why they invite me, because my, my article was exactly to address that question. So I guess you probably know my answer to them was a resounding, yes, you definitely need to do that to, to the survey. So what I did was really show using the super analogy others presented my study i think i did have a little bit of impact convince people say you at least should you should never should abandon these uh, careful study uh, carefully designed studies because probably all your truth is in from these quality studies instead of other these unknown quality big data well that's all the time we have for this episode of stats and stories jolly thank you so much for joining us again thank you for having me and yeah thanks jolly Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu, or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.